chapter 11. We're going to continue our study of the book of Revelation. And today we're looking at two remarkable figures, the two witnesses of Jesus Christ. We'll read the passage first and then we'll take the balance of our time to to study it together. Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they will have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial." The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to, meet, uh, went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is soon coming. Father, we come to you again and we ask you that you would instruct us and teach us from this passage. Lord, you say at the very beginning of this book, that those who read and study this book will be blessed. And so, God, we are counting again on your blessing, on your rich reward, God, as we dig into the text, that a book that many people are afraid of, but there's no reason to be afraid of this book. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. And, God, we come to you asking for wisdom to be able to hear the message for us in it. And Holy Spirit, I pray once again that you would take my mouth and use me for your glory. Let only the words that are from your heart be spoken. And we ask for every man and woman and young person here, including myself, Father, that we would be open and receptive to your fresh work in our lives. Fill us with your power. Fill us with your understanding and wisdom that we might be able to discern and understand the times we live in and live appropriately. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You know, some, some people, as we look at the book of Revelation, have suggested that it's not meant to be taken literally. 
that it's figurative, that it's symbolic, and that uh, what it says isn't really what it means. Well, I've thought about that, and of course if revelation is symbolic and can't really be taken for what it means, then what does it mean? What can language mean if it doesn't mean what it says? If the terms aren't naturally understandable to someone who reads them, then what point is there in reading the words at all? I think the Bible is extremely literal. I think that we can take God at His word. If you want to understand how to perceive and understand the book of Revelation, and whether you take it literally or symbolically, all you have to do is look at the other prophecies in the Bible that have already been fulfilled. Some of you may know that there are close to a thousand prophecies in the Bible. 500 of those prophecies have already been fulfilled, many of them relating to the first advent or first coming of Christ. And if you look at the prophecies of Christ, they're extremely literal. But in the Old Testament, before they were fulfilled, there were some who would say, oh, these are symbolic. They mean this or they mean that. They mean the other thing. But when Christ actually came, it was, my gosh, He fulfilled them perfectly and literally. There is no prophecy in Scripture ever written by God that's already been fulfilled that was symbolic or had to be taken in some sort of a aesthetic, supernatural way, but when it was fulfilled, it was like, my gosh, it would, exactly what he said would happen, happened. Exactly. And the timing was perfect. And so as we approach the book of Revelation and this chapter along with the others, we need to take... The Word of God, whether it's Genesis or any of the other books in between, all the way up to Revelation, as literal. Unless the text itself makes it clear that it's to be taken symbolically. Now, there's a quote that I find very helpful that I'll share with you that um, is not mine. It's been around for a long time and it applies especially to the study of prophecy. When the normal sense makes sense, don't seek any other sense pretty simple. When the normal sense of the text makes sense, don't seek any other sense. And so as we approach this chapter in, in Revelation chapter 11, it's, it's actually been uh, uh, described as the most difficult book in all of Revelation to interpret. But it's only difficult if you assume it's symbolic. But if you assume it's literal, it's just about one of the easiest chapters in the whole book to interpret. So, the great city that, that is identified here is the literal city of Jerusalem, and we'll talk about that. The time periods that are described here are literal time periods based on our same day that we experience now. The two witnesses are interpreted as two actual individuals. It's not the church and, or the law in the Old Testament. It's not uh, grace. It's not Peter and Paul, but it's actually two individuals that we'll study today. The three and a half days that are described are, are literal, literal three and a half days. The earthquake isn't symbolic of some sort of, a, of an upheaval politically, but it's an actual physical earthquake. The 7,000 who die in it are literal casualties of that catastrophe, and the death, resurrection, and ascension of these witnesses is to be taken literally. When we lay the groundwork in that fashion, this, this text is just it's embarrassingly easy. I feel embarrassed that I'm, I'm even going to spend 45 minutes explaining it to you. But hopefully I'll be able to interject some things along the way that will be helpful to you in your own growth in, uh, in terms of personal application. Now, John begins his, his writing here as he's recording it, and he says that he was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told to go measure the temple of God and the altar. 
and to count the worshipers there. And so we find uh, John uh, being given a command. Now this is the first time that he's actually participating in some fashion besides you know, being a scribe of the events that Jesus Christ has told him to write down. Now, so he, he's got this, this rod. It's, like a, a, it's the equivalent of like a very straight piece of bamboo. It grows along the Jordan River in a great quantity. They get up to like 20 feet tall and they're very straight and they were used uh, regularly for measuring things. Now, the temple that John is describing here uh, is interesting because in the Greek, there are two words for temple. Huron is the first word, and that, that has to do with the entire temple structure, the, the holy of holies, the holy area, the, the court, the outer court, the whole structure of the temple is included in that particular term. But that's not the term that John uses here. The term that he uses is naos. And naos actually refers strictly to the inner sanctuary of the presence of God. And so John is told by God or Christ or the angel to go and measure this particular area of the temple. And uh, undoubtedly this is a, a, alludes back to Zechariah and Ezekiel. And I think I have some references there, but if I don't, it's a Zechariah 2, Ezekiel 40 and 42, where the angel is measuring the temple again. And every time that takes place, it, it speaks of ownership and evaluation of the condition of the temple, not just the physical structure, but also, as, as John is instructed, to count the worshipers. Now, in the NIV, it says count, and that's a, a, probably a viable translation, but that word count actually isn't in the Greek. Uh, the word is measure. And so John is not only to measure the temple... Physical, physical measurement, but he's also to measure the believers in terms of their spiritual condition. So count is a, is a viable translation, but actually it means to measure the worshipers. Now, I remember when we bought our first house back in New York, and um, I'm very thrifty. I've had to be. You know, in ministry, you have to be quite thrifty, and I've always just been kind of bent that way anyway. And so I've been very thrifty. And I remember when, when we were uh, in the process of buying the house and we were in escrow, one of the things that the attorney suggested is that we do a survey of the property. And I'm like, the first question I asked was, how much is that? Because, <laughs> you know, they've got all of these little bills along the way that add up. And so they said, well, it's going to be about, I think it was about between 250 and $300, which was fairly inexpensive. And so I said, wow, do we really need that? I mean, I've already been on the property. The old stakes are still there. You can see them in the ground. And, you know, what's the point? My neighbors, everybody, there's a fence there. I mean, what's the, what's the point? And he said, for, for the safety of your property. Because if in some time in the future, uh, someone makes a claim that your boundaries are, are off, off center, it can completely disrupt the whole process of, of closing an escrow, as well as possibly put you at risk of a lawsuit in the future. And so he said it's, a, it's a, a, an investment that's worthwhile. And so we went ahead and we had the land surveyed. And what that did is that it, it was staking out the property. The property was an escrow. We didn't actually own it yet. But in the process of getting ready to own it, we had to go ahead and have the, the property surveyed. And so the surveyors came out and they did their job. And when it was all said and done, it was exactly what it was before. And it was 250 bucks out the window. But the fact is, is now the surveyor became responsible at that point if anything was wrong with the, with the work that he did. And so we have Jesus Christ... Remember, uh, as we've talked before, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb who opened the scroll. The scroll is the title deed to the earth. It's been usurped by the enemy because man and our sin gave it over to Satan. And he is, in a sense, a usurper. And yet, 
by very nature that it was given or deeded over by Adam and Eve because of their sin, he has a rightful claim to it. But Jesus Christ now is coming back. He's come back and he's, and he's defeated sin and death at the cross. He's forgiven man. He's opened the door of relationship with him once again for anyone who would call on his name. And now, Jesus Christ, who is about to reclaim what belongs rightfully to him, is coming back and he's taking assessment of his temple area and of Jerusalem. And he's measuring it. And he's counting the worshipers there. Because shortly, he is going to reclaim not just the earth and not just the temple and not just Jerusalem, but heaven and earth and everything in it. And so we find John obeying and measuring this temple. But he's told to exclude those in the outer court, unbelieving Gentiles. That was what the outer court was for, was, was Gentile believers. But he follows it up by saying in this passage in verse 2 that it has been given to the Gentiles and that's why it's not to be measured. Now it's interesting if you're in your free time you want to look up Jeremiah 51.51. It's an interesting passage that sheds some light on this. But when we were in Jerusalem, we, we, um, this was just a year ago, in fact just a, a year and a few weeks ago, and had a marvelous time. We were there for about 10 days or 12 days, I can't remember. And, uh, but at, toward the end, we, uh, the, the whole trip finished up in Jerusalem. And as we were there in Jerusalem, one of the highlights was going to the Temple Mount. Now, the temple, if you recall in Scripture and also just historically, was destroyed in 70 A.D. So all that's left is the Temple Mount. And the Wailing Wall is all that the Jews have left of what, what is originally a part of the temple. Now, on the Temple Mount, when you, when you get on the Temple Mount, I'm thinking, oh, it'd be great to see the Temple of God, but of course it doesn't exist because back in the, in the 600s, early 600s of, this, uh, you know, of A.D., the Muslims came in and they built what they call the Dome of the Rock. And some of you are familiar with that term and you've seen it. If you've ever seen a picture of Jerusalem, you'll see this, this uh, beautiful structure, huge, and it's a dome. And it's, and it's uh, I don't know if it's actual gold, 14 karat gold uh, paint up there or what, but the whole temple is gold and it's got marble uh, blue tile on the outside. I mean, it's a really a stunning uh, edifice. And, uh, but it's the Muslim temple. It's the third most sacred shrine for the Muslims in the entire world. And so when you go up on the Dome of the Rock, you know, what I want to do is I want to get on my knees and I want to worship right there. But we were told you can't pray here. In fact, we saw some people getting run off. And so, you know, being um, the very compliant and obedient boy I've ever been since I was a little boy, I immediately found a, a place where we could pray. And we started to try to pray and, and we saw them coming and so we, we stopped. But uh, I, don't, I don't know if I really did it to just irritate those guys or if I was just wanting to pray. But I think it was kind of a combination of both, knowing, knowing, <laughs> knowing myself. I'm, I'm a bad boy. I, I always have been. And I don't think things are going to improve. But God's working on me, so be patient. Anyway, the interesting... Glenn, what are you laughing at? Okay, the interesting thing is, is that uh, this Dome of the Rock uh, occupies what would be considered the Temple Mount, where the Temple was built, Solomon's Temple, and then uh, Zechariah's Temple, and then, of course, Herod's Temple. Now, the, the big deal is, is that the Jews believe, according to prophecy, and it's true, that the Temple will, will be rebuilt on the Temple Mount. Now the problem is that everybody's thinking, okay, we've got to somehow get rid of the Dome of the Rock. And how are you going to do that? It's been given over to the, to the Gentiles. And it actually, the, the Israelis have given that area 
to the Muslims. So there's nothing they can do about getting rid of the Dome of the Rock. And so they thought, well, some judgment of God is going to have to take place or you know, some such event that takes the Dome of the Rock out of the way. And we can't foresee what event that would be. And nobody's been able to really figure out what would bring that event to pass. But the interesting thing is, is that there's a Jewish engineer who began to do tremendous and thorough research on the Temple Mount. And to his surprise and to the delight of scholars, and they began to do the research to back up what he said, and sure enough, he was right. The, the place of the Dome of the Rock is where the outer court was in the original temple. And so the original temple, the inner sanctuary that Jesus says he wants to have measured, is actually slightly north right over by another little small edifice that we actually prayed under uh, called All Saints Temple or something of that nature. I've forgotten exactly what it is. But it's All Saints, All Saints site. And so it's not the Dome of the Rock and it's slightly north. And with their calculations, they discovered, lo and behold, that the Temple of God could be built without even touching or coming close to the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock would actually be occupying the outer court of the Temple of God which Jesus prophesied would be given over to the Gentiles and was not to be measured. Interesting. Now, you know as well as I do the conniptions and the problems and the, and the difficulties that the Palestinians and the Israelis have had in coming to any kind of a peace process. But it wouldn't surprise me if at some point in the future with the help of the Antichrist, which we'll be talking about in a few moments, there'll be some agreement to split the Temple Mount and to give the Jews a place to build their temple. And so... Possibly, side by side, these two uh, temples will exist. The temple of God and the temple that is uh, dedicated to the place where they believe Muhammad ascended uh, back in the first century. So, just interesting uh, that, uh, you know, how God has orchestrated these things and what man thought was impossible, all of a sudden, is possible. Now, we're told that they're going to trample this holy city and, uh, and this temple for a period of 42 months. It just means that it'll be defiled uh, by the unbelievers and it doesn't mean that they're any more wicked than anyone else it just means that they're unbelievers and uh, unbelievers weren't allowed in the temple uh, non-Jews weren't allowed in the temple area in the Holy of Holies because uh, that would be according to scripture defiling the temple and so uh, these, uh, these people are not allowed to come in and he talks about the fact that it's the holy city that will be trampled now again a lot of people ask what's the holy city? Is the holy city some sort of a... Is it a collection? Is it the church? Is it the, the Jewish population of believers? Is it a, a group of people? Or is it an actual place? Is it maybe Rome? Uh, could it be uh, Babylon? I mean, there are all of these possible suggestions. But the word of God, again, if you just take it for what it says, it makes common sense. This place is actually the city of Jerusalem. Now, the support for that is found in the Old Testament. Often, uh, Jerusalem is, is, uh, is communicated to us as being the holy city. In Nehemiah 11, Isaiah 48, Isaiah 52, and in Daniel 9, it's, it's referred to in prophecy as the holy city. In the New Testament, it's referred to as the holy city. Jerusalem, the holy city. Matthew 5 and Matthew 27. And interestingly, in verse 8 that we'll talk about in a few minutes... Uh, we find that it's the place where our Lord was crucified. Well, where was Jesus crucified? Well, he was crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And so it's fairly plain, again, if you uh, take the text for what it says, that this is Jerusalem. Now, 
How is all of this trampling going to take place? How is all of this defilement going to take place? How is the temple going to be built? Well, the Bible tells us prophetically in, in Daniel and in other places in the Old Testament as well as the passage we're looking at that the Antichrist is actually going to make a covenant with the people of Israel. A seven-year covenant of peace. And I think it's clearly going to be related to the peace process in, in the Middle East. I think that uh, in order to uh, gain the, the support and encouragement of the people of Israel, they are looking not for Jesus the Messiah, but they are looking for a political leader who will lead them to, to a, a lasting peace. And they are going to see in the Antichrist the ultimate politician. And he is going to astound the world at his ability to draw competing and warring and factious nations together. And the people of Israel are going to embrace the Antichrist because of the peace that he is able to bring. So during this period of time, during the first three and a half years of peace, the Jews are going to reconstruct their temple. Temple worship will be reinstituted. They're reinstituted. They're going to go back to actual animal sacrifice, which of course we know is meaningless because Jesus was the final sacrifice for the sin of every man and woman in the world. There is no further need for sacrifice, but because the Jews don't believe in Jesus the Messiah, they're still wanting to sacrifice because they're still waiting for their Messiah. So ever since 70 AD, all the way until this very day, the Jews have not been able to sacrifice according to the law at the temple of God. And this Antichrist will promise them the support, the financial help, and the political power to expedite the rebuilding of the temple along with the reinstitution of the sacrifices. Now, at the end of the first three and a half years, what's going to happen is that this Antichrist, this great political figure who will have won the world over, will break his covenant with Israel and will set himself up in the temple of God to be worshipped as God. Now in Daniel 12, verse 11, we're told that this event is called the abomination of desolation. It is the, the soiling and the spoiling of the temple of God and it is the time when the Antichrist will finally reveal his true identity and what his objectives are. Now, at that point, John begins to say that having these things been accomplished, the 42 months, of course, if you break that down, it's three and a half years, this first three and a half year period has passed and then he says I'm going to give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Again, 1,260 days is three and a half years. So the first three and a half years will be a, a, a period of peace, a period of sacrifice, a period of the rebuilding of the temple and the second three and a half years when the Antichrist announces himself, God is going to inject into uh, Jerusalem two witnesses who will testify for him. Now the question is, who are they? Uh, I'll tell you right away, there's, there are literally hundreds of possible suggestions. And I'm not going to waste our time going through all the, the, the wacky ones. I'm going to try to hone it down just to the reasonable ones. The reasonable ones are three. The first is that this may very well be Elijah and Enoch. Now, why these two? Well, the reason is, is that these two are, are distinguished from every other human being in all of creation in that they did not die a physical death. Now we know that Enoch, you remember the story of Enoch? He's in Genesis. 
He was right there at the beginning. We also know according to the New Testament that he prophesied the coming of Christ. But the Bible says that Enoch walked with God and then he was not because God took him. Now, I've always been mystified by that and I thought, why Enoch? Why not, you know, Abraham or Moses or some of these other figures that were, you know, tremendously powerful in the kingdom of God? Why Enoch? And, you know, why was he taken? I, I, you, you ever had that question? I could never really quite figure out why Enoch. It was just the sovereignty of God, of course, but, but why Enoch? Well, some believe that he was taken, as Elijah was, if you recall, who was taken by chariots of fire and was caught up in the whirlwind right in front of Elisha's face, and he didn't experience death either, some believe that these may be the two witnesses. Because in Hebrews 9.27, it says it's appointed for men to die once and after that to face judgment. So if you can only die once, then the prophets couldn't be people who come back alive from the dead because then they would have to die twice because as we'll discover in this text, these prophets die. So some people believe that Enoch and Elijah are the logical choices because God took them up and has somehow preserved them or, you know, I'm not quite sure how, he, how he's handled that. I'll, I'll t- talk with him later. I forgot to ask him that. And, uh, and, he's, and he's kept them for that very specific purpose of bringing them back to earth to testify in his behalf and then they'll be killed. It's a very, I think, a great argument. Um, other people think that it, it's Elijah and Moses, not Enoch. Now the reason is, is that according to Jewish tradition, it's Moses and Elijah who are the two prophets or the two witnesses that return to the earth in the last days. And, and this is based on some very sound principles. First of all, we have the past history. The works that these two witnesses do are almost verbatim what Elijah and Moses did. If you consider them, Elijah was the one who called down fire from heaven. These guys blow fire right out of their mouths. That is going to be a trip. Can you believe that? These guys are actually able to, to project. I've seen this in Mexico, uh, down at the border. <laughs> but to actually have it not coming from kerosene in their mouth, but from the, just the power of God consuming enemies is just going to be something that's going to be a little difficult for CNN uh, to, to explain. Now, we also know that Elijah had the power to prevent rain for three and a half years, and the Bible says that during this three and a half year period of God using these witnesses, there is not going to be an ounce of rain. There's going to be a tremendous drought in the land of Jerusalem. Can you imagine three and a half years? I mean, that would devastate an economy and a people to not have, to, to not have water. Jerusalem is already in deep trouble because that whole Palestinian-Israeli area is... is uh, growing so much, especially on, in, uh, in Israel. They, they've learned how to irrigate in such phenomenal ways that they're actually able to grow these huge banana patches out in a desert. You know, everything is complete desert out there and, you, and there, there's just this flourishing banana patch out there, you know, acres and acres. And they do that with all kinds of fruit, with oranges and tangerines and lemons. and It's amazing. But because of that, there's a water shortage. And so it's going to be compounded by the fact that for three and a half years there will be no rain. So again, Elijah seems like a logical, it seems like God is kind of saying that they're going to be just like Elijah, but also just like Moses, because Moses had the power given by God to extend his staff over the Nile during the Exodus, or before the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, and it all turned to blood. Not just the Nile, but all in the water pots, jugs, you know, uh, in their coolers, wherever it was. The water turned to blood, and these prophets as well will have the ability to turn the water to blood. 
And then Moses had the power to call down all types of plagues and we know about the ten plagues. And, and this, this prophet, these prophets and these uh, the witnesses, the Bible says, has the power to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. And so people see in the past history that, wow, this sounds a lot like Moses and Elijah. The only two guys that did this kind of stuff. Now there's also a prophecy in Malachi 4.5 that predicts Elijah in the last and final days before the great and terrible day of the Lord is going to reappear. So people say, man, that isn't just about John the Baptist because that wasn't the last and final terrible days. The last and final terrible days will be during that time of tribulation, the three and a half year period when these witnesses will be active. We also know that... Um, there's a precedence for Elijah and Moses working together. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Who was there that appeared with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. And they had a, they had a little chat there on, the, on, the, on that mountain. And, and we know how Peter, you know, just in his goofy way, probably did what I would have done. Is Hey, I don't know what to say. Let's say something. Hey, let's build a, a, a little tabernacle for each of you so we can worship you. Well, it wasn't what God wanted. But the point was is that Moses and Elijah appeared together. Interesting that their passings were, were somewhat similar, a little different. We already know Elijah was taken in a whirlwind and never experienced death. But Moses' death was interesting. He died, but the body of Moses was fought over by the archangel Michael and Satan. Do you remember that story? That they were fighting over the body. Now, who would fight over a dead corpse? What was so strategic about his body? that they would fight over it. It's possible they were fighting over it because they didn't want, you know, God didn't want Moses' body to be worshipped. But it's also possible that the body was being fought over because God had some intention and future purpose for Moses and his body. So it's a very likely possibility. Now we also know that who could have greater influence and power over the people of Israel Jews than Moses and Elijah. Moses, who was the the prophet of the Old Testament, and Elijah, the greatest prophet uh, that followed. And so we have these two people who, more perfectly than anyone else, probably would have the influence over the Jewish community to call them back to God. Now, the third possibility is that these are just two contemporary prophets who are raised up after the rapture and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by the testimony of the 144,000 uh, and, and they, they come to Christ and they become very, very powerful witnesses of God. So, in reality, it doesn't really matter. These are somewhat uh, points of conjecture and I, I want you to know that, that there's nothing solid on any of these points, but personally, my belief is that these two are Moses and Elijah called back one last time for the purposes of God. Now, we're told that they're given power to prophesy for 1,260 days, which again is three and a half years. And they're clothed in sackcloth, which was, you know, very common garment for prophets. Uh, it was mohair, usually made out of camel, um, camel hair or goat hair woven, sometimes including the hide and worn inside out. It's scratchy, it's itchy, it's ugly, it's smelly, it's, uh, it, it's not, you know, uh, Broadway kind of stuff. But it's partly identifying the, the humility of the prophets and their abstinence from everything in the world except to do the will of God. And so these two witnesses are further identified in verse 4 as the two olive trees, trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, you have to go back in prophecy to understand who these guys are. 
It refers to it in, in actually in uh, Zechariah chapter 4 where Zechariah is given a similar vision of two olive trees uh, providing oil for two golden lamps. And, uh, and in reality what it's pointing to because we know in, in, uh, in Zechariah chapter 4 that there will be these two lampstands and they will be coming at the end times to witness for Christ. And so we know who these guys are. It's pointing to these two witnesses. And the idea is that these men in Revelation 11 are two witnesses of God filled with the Spirit which is represented by the oil and the lamps to shine forth the message of Jesus Christ and the power of God to an unbelieving world. Now, this is remarkable stuff. But what I will encourage you with and I'm encouraged by is to realize that these aren't the only two lamps that God has provided to be witnesses of His glory. Because the Bible says in Matthew 5 that you are the light of the world. That you are the salt of the earth. And that He doesn't want you to to hide your light, but He wants you to just put it right in the most prominent place in the house so everyone in your presence can be encouraged and blessed by the light that comes from your life. And so, we are the light of the world as well. God's lamp of revelation to an unbelieving world and unbelieving friends and family around us. Now, what are these guys actually going to do? Well, we're told that they're going to stand before the Lord of the earth in His behalf, and if anyone tries to harm them, fire is going to come from their mouth and devour their enemies. I mean, this is, this is like out of a comic book. This is amazing, but it's right up there with, uh, with locusts that uh, have scorpion-like stings in their tail. It, the whole thing seems fantastic, but again, if you look at prophecy that's already been fulfilled, all the amazing prophecies of the Old Testament all, that have been fulfilled were fulfilled literally. And so I don't see the, the, the fire coming out of these guys' mouths as just the, the hot, hot argument of a prophet scorching the, 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 the defenses of, of uh, their opponents verbally. But these prophets, these witnesses are actually going to be able to breathe out fire that will consume their enemies. Now, they're also going to be able to shut the rain of heaven as we talked about. And we're told in James 5 <coughs> that Elijah was a man just like us. That means he's just like us. <laughs> it's literal. That means that there was nothing supernatural about Elijah any more than there is about us. And yet, he was able, through prayer, in his jud- God's judgment of Israel and the kings at that time for their disobedience, to shut the reign of heaven for three and a half years. Isn't that interesting that it's the very same time frame of Elijah's experience back in the Old Testament? Now, again, we find out that, as I've already said, uh, uh, Moses was able to turn the water to blood and he was able to strike the earth with every kind of plague. And so, these guys were very powerful. And I, as I was thinking about this, I thought, okay, here are two guys that are, that are sold out for Christ. They're not any different than we are. There's nothing special about them except that they love God and they're obedient to Him. But they're willing, at the cost of their lives, to fulfill the mission God has given them. That's all. There's nothing more special about these guys other than that. They love God. They're, they've been called to a purpose and a mission. And they said, I'm willing. Send me. That's all. There isn't any more to that story than that. We have 12 disciples in the beginning of the early church. Kind of a scruffy bunch. Some of them were probably a little more intelligent than others, but most of them were uneducated. They were fishermen. 
That doesn't mean that they're dumb. It just means that they didn't have a lot of education. They didn't have a lot of the resources that maybe other people in their time had. And God, through those 12, turned the world upside down. And for three and a half years, these two prophets are virtually going to be a thorn in the side of the Antichrist and the whole world is going to be consumed with these prophets. And I think to myself, I don't know how many people we've got here, but I think to myself, what would happen if every one of us made a decision that we would live for God with nothing held back? No reservations. No, I'll give God, you know, kind of my free time, a little bit of my free time, because of course I need to rest and relax. And, but I've got all this time, we've got all this time consumed with so many things, acquiring and making our lives comfortable and doing so many things that are for us. And so little of our effort and energy goes to really serving the Lord. And I'm not being critical, I'm, I'm confessing myself too. But I think to myself, if two prophets can, can cause such consternation and bring so many millions to Christ, which is what's going to happen, and if 12 disciples can turn the world upside down and that we are the product of their faithfulness, what could happen on this island if every one of us made a decision that we won't play around anymore but will really go for the Christian life? Nothing held back, nothing in reserve. I tell you, this island wouldn't be the same. But it wouldn't just affect this island, it would affect the entire globe. can happen. Nothing's beyond the work of God. He's just looking for men and women who are willing. The Bible says, as I've quoted to you before, the eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro throughout the whole earth looking to support those whose hearts are devoted to Him. Are you that kind of man? Are you that kind of woman? If you are, you can be a mighty instrument in the hand of God Almighty. So we find these prophets doing some amazing things and I've listed in my notes here that God stages the second greatest comeback of all time. This should be made into a movie. I hope someday it will be. And I think it's actually going to be a movie. I think they're working on it. Tim LaHaye and the writers of Left Behind are working on this movie. But this is, this is, there, there's nothing to compare to it except for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the first greatest comeback of all time never to be surpassed by anything else but this is the second greatest comeback of all time and in some ways because it's going to be visible to the entire globe it is going to be even more remarkable because of the numbers of people who will witness the events that John begins to describe in verse 7 we're told that when they have finished their testimony the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. And so these two witnesses are going to be murdered. Now, I find it interesting if you look at the text here, it says, now when they have finished their testimony. You see, the beast doesn't attack them and overpower them and kill them before they're done. It's when they're finished that they get attacked and are killed. These guys were faithful to the very end. They were virtually indestructible until God's purposes for their lives were completed. And you know what that means to me? Just applying this personally and to us as a, as a group of people who love the Lord. Is that this means that your life also is indestructible until God's purposes for you are complete. 
Now that doesn't mean that you should go bungee jumping without checking the line or jump out of a plane without a parachute. But what it does mean is that God's purposes for you will be fulfilled if you're willing and nothing will inhibit it until your job and your mission and your task is brought to completion. We're told by John, uh, uh, the same writer of this book in 1 John, that the one who is born of God, referring to Jesus Christ, will keep you safe and the evil one cannot harm you. So Satan cannot touch you or harm you until your mission is finished. Now Jesus talks about the mission. Paul talks about his mission. I want to touch on this briefly. Jesus Christ talks about his mission. Do you remember him talking about the fact that he's got a work to complete and something to finish? John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And this is in his upper room prayer. He's just about ready to be betrayed by, by uh, Judas and of course all the events unfold quickly after that uh, for his death on the cross. And on the cross, do you remember when he has his arms stretched out and he breathed his last and his last gasp of air, what did he say? It is finished. It is finished. Well, come on, you know, give me a break. There were all kinds of crippled people still roaming the streets and not everyone was saved. And how could he possibly claim something of that magnitude? Well, the reason he was able to do it is because he knew what God's mission was for his life. It was very specific and very defined. And Jesus was so in tune with the Father that when he was done, he was actually able to say, I've completed everything that you've called me to do. And now, by the choice of my own will and spirit, I give up my spirit and I come home. Now, if you think that was just for Jesus, think again, because Paul had the very same experience. Paul, in Acts 20, had a desire. He says, I only want to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And he tells us what that task is, to testify of Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. So that was what he was trying to aim at to finish and to complete. That was his course. And in 2 Timothy, which is one of the last books he wrote before he was martyred, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So in a very similar way, Paul has his arms stretched out and says, I finished the job. I'm ready to go home. What has God called you to? What is your mission in life? What's the purpose for your existence? If you don't know, then how will you know whether you've completed your mission or not? I think often we're so busy with our lives and our hobbies and our obligations and our commitments and our stuff that we've never really taken time to figure out how we are going to be able to identify whether we finish what God has called us to do. You know, one of the basic principles of any business or goal setting or anything is you've got to figure out what your goal is so that you can work toward it and then when you're there you can say, job done. It needs to be measurable in some fashion. And I'm afraid that many of us have not taken time to think about what the end game is and what our end objective is so that we're not really sure if we're getting anything done except that we're just trying to live comfortably. But we kind of live hour by hour and month by month and week by week and year by year and 
We're just kind of keeping pace with life, but we're not quite sure if we've arrived yet. Are you with me? Can I make a suggestion to you? My suggestion is that if you want to know what your mission in life is, is that you go to the Word of God and you seek out God diligently until you find out what your mission is. Now there's some broad generalizations about what our mission is and I don't have time to talk about it now. You seek it out. But there's specific applications of that mission. And what I would suggest to you is that if you're very interested in doing God's will and being able to come to the end of your life and say, it is finished, I have completed everything that you called me to do, then you must be a man or a woman who is in daily communion and in relationship with the Holy Spirit. Moment by moment. You, you know, He's not going to give you the list for the rest of your life about what you're going to do. You know the broad categories of what He wants us to do. He wants us to be evangelizing. He wants us to be loving. He wants us to be godly. Examples, lights and darkness. There are many things that He wants us to do, all related to giving testimony to Jesus Christ. But the specifics of how it works out in your life requires a moment-by-moment dependence of your life on Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. And I think that many of us, myself included, sometimes can go a whole afternoon or a whole day, sometimes days, without even giving consideration to what God wants me to do for that day. And I quickly pray up a prayer to God, bless my day, all the plans I got for you and your glory. Instead of saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Here are some things on my list, but would you help me prioritize these things according to your will because when all is said and done and I'm breathing my last I want to be able to say with Jesus Christ and with Paul I have completed the course I have run the race and there's awaiting me and you a crown of righteousness in heaven there's no reason why you can't have that confidence and that assurance if you're willing to seek out God and be dependent upon the Holy Spirit now we know that the, the one who will kill these two witnesses is the beast from the abyss. He will kill them and overpower them. They are going to be left unburied in the great city and it's figuratively called in verse 8, Sodom and Egypt. And because of this, people say, well, figuratively, that doesn't mean... Maybe it does mean Sodom. Maybe it does mean Egypt. Maybe it's Babylon. But figuratively gives us a clue. You remember I said, take it for what it means unless the text itself indicates that it has another meaning. And so we look at that word figuratively and we know right away it's not Sodom, the actual Sodom and the actual Egypt. What does Sodom stand for? Except corruption and perversion and disobedience to God, rebellion. What does Egypt stand for? Except enslaving the people of God. And so Jerusalem is going to be a city that will be corrupt beyond anything that we can even imagine at this point. And we think that we're corrupt. It's going to get worse. It's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's going to be enslaving the people of, who are designed to be for God and yet have not received Him yet. And it's the city where the Lord was crucified. Now, it's really beyond description what is going to happen to these two witnesses. And I, I, uh, there's a part of me, because I'm a, I'm a guy, and I kind of like gore and stuff like that. My boys, they just, you know, they want to take everything apart and they want to see blood. And all their, their favorite, I'm sorry, I'm just being honest, their favorite Old Testament stories are where somebody gets, you know, stabbed. Or, I mean, it's just war and it's, it's like guns and army and, you know, they love that stuff. I don't know what it is. But as we look at these prophets, this is, this is beyond anything you can imagine. This is completely grotesque and gruesome what happens to them from this point on because in verse 9 we're told that they're dishonored for three and a half days men from every people tribe and language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial now 
It's interesting that up until this century, up until in the last 20 years, 30 years, everybody looked at this particular word and said, see, the Bible's not reliable because there's no way that the whole world from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people are going to be able to see anything anywhere in the world at the same time. Well, lo and behold, satellite network. CNN, Fox News Network, all of these satellites. We've got literally hundreds and hundreds of satellites up floating around in space and you can see them you know, streaking across the sky at night. But that makes it possible for this prophecy, which everybody said, oh, it can never happen. It must mean something else. It must be figurative. No, every person will be able to see it across the globe. It will be carried live in a very gruesome way because these prophets, these men of God, will be refused burial, which is, of course, one of the greatest insults and callous acts of human indecency and degradation that would be possible. I don't want to go into detail, but you can imagine what happens to a body out in the open Three and a half days. Untended, uncared for. I, I don't want to go into detail. Your imaginations can, can imagine uh, you know, what it would look like and what that would be like. And rather than grieving over the, the, the inhumanity of leaving these men unburied, the whole world, according to verse 10, gloats over them. And they actually have a gift exchange and they start celebrating. It's a giant party. It's kind of like a satanic Christ, Christ, Christmas celebration. Rather than glorying in the coming of Christ, they're glorying in the, in the defeat of the messengers of God. And they throw a huge party. I mean, can you imagine the callousness of, of people's hearts? Whether they, you know, whatever they believed about God, but to see two human beings, you know, rotting out in the open, probably in the Temple Mount area, probably near the Wailing Wall, and for people not to have compassion in their heart, day after day, hour after hour, as, as CNN and all the major networks pipe into the homes of people all across the world, this picture of these two slain men of God. But they're having a party. They're really whooping it up. In fact, it's the only time in the book of Revelation that the people of earth rejoice, and unfortunately for them, the party doesn't last very long. Three and a half days. And then something powerful happens in verse 11. After the three and a half days, a breath of life from God will enter them and they will stand on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And so we've got God raising from the dead these two prophets. How did he do it? How, you know, I can see, you know, in my own thinking, I'm thinking, okay, it's possible for God to raise somebody from the dead who just kind of kicked over right then. Their body's still warm. You know, you do a little CPR, it doesn't work. You pray over them, all of a sudden they come back to life. That, in my mind, is humanly possible. What's not possible is Jesus Christ in the grave for three days, rotting in the grave. You know, all his you know, bodily fluids, the body's made up of over 80% water, and it's just draining away, and he's, he's just he's skin and bones. There's a, it's just a corpse. There's no life. His eyes are rotted out. The, 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 he's, just, he's a mess. I mean, it's, there's no hope for the resurrection of Christ, and yet God does it past the point of what man thinks is possible. And God, in his sovereignty and his power, is going to let this go beyond the, the realm of human possibility. And after these guys are, are dead corpses with all kinds of infestations of animals living inside them, dogs coming and, and, and abusing them at night and eating them. I'm, I'm sorry to be graphic, but this is what the Bible teaches in the Old Testament happens when men are left out in, in that time period. That It was meant to be totally humiliating 
And God, when all is lost and there's no hope for these guys, He breathes life into them. Takes me all the way back to Genesis when God took the dust of the earth and He formed man and breathed into him. And He became a living being. And God is going to do the same thing with these two prophets. And they stood up and of course everybody's terrified at that point. I'm thinking to myself, boy, this would be a good time for these guys to preach. You know? <laughs> wouldn't you think? I mean, they've already seen all the miracles and everything, but wouldn't this be a classic time for these guys to like scorch everyone around them? But that's not what happens. And I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Luke 16 that he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. They've heard the message and rejected it. And they're rejecting it not because there's a lack of evidence, but because they refuse to bow the knee to God. And at that moment, a loud voice is heard and says, Come up here. Very reminiscent of, of uh, Revelation 4 where John is invited to come up into the heavenly realm. And so they go up into the heavens. And this is a visible event and they go up in the clouds before the eyes of everyone. And right at that moment, the Bible says in verse 13 that there's a great earthquake. And it's uh, the third earthquake in Revelation. We had another one in chapter 6 and another one in chapter 8. And now we're at the third one. We've got more earthquakes coming. But at that moment, a tenth of the city falls and 7,000 people are killed. Now, that's not a huge number of people, but it's significant because probably most of these people will be killed near the temple area, the temple mount. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to God. Now, there's an interesting passage in, in, uh, in Psalm 64 that says, And all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider His doing. So in other words, people are going to sit there and say, Well, gee, this is an amazing thing that God has done. And they're going to actually give glory to God, but not necessarily a glory that leads to salvation or a repentance that leads to salvation, because the righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in Him, and all the upright in heart will give glory to God. Do you remember the, the repentance of the centurion at the cross when he said, this truly was the Son of God? That's the repentance that led to salvation. Do you remember Judas? His sorrow that led to death. He acknowledged and recognized who God was, but he went out and hung himself and failed to receive eternal life because of that. And then John finishes up by saying that the second woe is past and the third woe is coming. We remember from the eagle that was flying in the heavenly realm in chapter 8 that the first woe was the plague of locusts and the second plague was the 200 horsemen that came and slaughtered one-third of the earth's population. And next week we're going to look at the seventh trumpet. This is a phenomenal chapter. I encourage you to read it and to be ready as we study it next week. But my question to you in closing is, if Moses and Elijah, being men just like we are, made of the same stuff, having the same resources, can accomplish what they did, why can't we? Why can't we be mighty for the purposes in the kingdom of God? They had a credible witness because the Holy Spirit was working in and through them. We have the same Holy Spirit. The integrity and consistency of their lives made them a faithful and authentic witness. We can have an authentic witness, not by being perfect, but by, by being men and women of integrity and really following Christ. And their commitment and obedience to God, no matter what the cost, they, they counted the cost and they made a clear decision about what they wanted to do based on what God had called them to do in such a manner that when it was all said and done, they were able to say, the task is completed. And they surrendered themselves to the, to the Antichrist and were killed. I don't envision them fighting or wrestling match or anything like that. They just surrendered themselves peacefully and were killed. 
because their job had been done. Do you know what it is that God wants you to do? Are you going to be able to say any point in your life, I mean, if you were taken today, could you really say, it's finished, I've completed the task that God has given me to do? If you can't, would you join me in prayer that we would be men and women like that, who seek out His will and make a decision once and for all that we belong to Him and that no matter what the cost, we will finish the race, we will run the course that He's given us so that we can receive the reward of His approval. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this very powerful passage. And Lord, we thank You for the witness of these two men who lay everything down and consider their lives nothing that they might win Christ. Lord, help us to be men and women like that. Draw us close to Yourself. Give us a hunger for Your Word and Holy Spirit, a a passion to, to talk with You constantly and to hear Your voice throughout every moment of every day that we might do Your will so that when all is said and done that we too can say along with Christ and Paul and these two witnesses, it is finished. I've completed the task. I've run the course. Now bring me home. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.